Welcome to SilvaCast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Brad! Brad! Hey, Brad! What are you doing? Slash walls, Gregor. Building slash walls. In your backyard? Well, you got to do it someplace. So that (laughs) one over there, it's protecting my new grapevines. Uh-huh. Remember I had that frost with damage last year? Oh, yeah, you lost them. Yeah. So that was a problem. And just when I get them through that, now I got to deal with deer. So no more. We're putting in slash walls. Okay, but this is your backyard, and these things are like 10 feet high. I'm sure Mary is just thrilled with the look. And wouldn't uh, just a fence have sufficed? Pennywise, my friend, Pennywise. This is much more cost effective. This and you know what? This slash was free. All I had to do was out and get it. So, huh? And yeah. I'll I'll smooth it over with Mary. This she, all she, sounds familiar. Um, it, it'll be big. I see. What's that slash wall that you're building over there now? See that little circular one? That's around my bird feeder. Oh. And have you seen the price of bird feed recently? And and hey, the squirrels are cleaning me out of house and home too. Oh, oh, Brad, the squirrels can climb. All right, good point. I might've got a little carried away on that one. Uh, but, you know, recently I was reading about how slash walls are used to protect regeneration harvest. Mm-hmm. You know what? I had to try them out. And I think every forester will agree we need more cost-effective ways to mitigate the impacts of deer browse on forest regeneration. Well, that we do. I will agree. So, Mr. Hutnick, you can take the safety gear off and put the saw down because today on Silvacast, we will be speaking with a fantastic group of foresters who have innovated the slash walls approach to deer browse protection. With us today is Peter Smallage, the New York State Extension Forester, Brett Chedzoy, Regional Extension Forester at Cornell, and our very own Jason Hennis, Forest Ranger for the Wisconsin DNR. Excellent. Greg, I'll be right there. I just got to plug one last hole in this wall. Well, Brad is working on that. Folks, we'll be right back. All right, Peter, Brett, Jason, welcome to SilvaCast. I know I'm really excited to have just a a really great group of people who practice silviculture in the field. And so I'm excited for this conversation. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. We're looking forward to it. Greg, I don't know about you, but it's really exciting seeing a a big group on Silvacast like this. Um, Yeah, this is like a little bigger than we normally have. So I'm a little bit nervous, just kind of lots of different things going on at once. But uh, don't worry. I was going to say this is not a business meeting. It's more like a conversation at the bar. although. We're not at the bar, so we, we can amend it, Greg, if we need to. We could go get drinks, but I, yeah, I, maybe <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, maybe later. Yeah. So I think, though, we probably should um, be a little bit formal in terms of doing introductions because everybody out there in the audience doesn't know who all of you are. So could you guys give um, just sort of a brief overview? of who you are, where do you work, and what your job is. So maybe, Jason, we'll start with you. 
Uh, well, hello, everybody. It's, it's very nice to be here. Um, my name is Jason Hennis. I am a Wisconsin DNR forester. Uh, Forest Ranger is my title in central Wisconsin in Wapaka County, located at Hartman Creek State Park. I am responsible for state lands timber management on all of our state lands within Wapaka County, uh, as well as forest fire suppression, uh, prescribed burning, private forestry assistance with private landowners, uh, as well as I'm a statewide resource. That's probably the five second mark, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, perfect. <laughs> and, and you are on fire duty. So, yes. you know, if you got to go, you got to go. And I am on fire duty. So if I have to go <laughs> and the pager goes off, well, I'm sorry. And then, I'll have to catch up with you guys. In, yeah, in a bit. Then we yeah. know what it was. Okay. Yeah. How about you, Peter? Uh, hello, everybody. I'm really delighted to be here to be invited. It's uh, Silvacast seems like a great resource and it's um, fun to be able to be part of that. So uh, I'm Peter Smallage. I work at Cornell University. My primary job is to serve as the state extension forester. So I work statewide with uh, educational programming for woodlot owners and foresters and loggers. I'm involved in applied research and the kind of the two general areas where I've done research include how to kill trees. So managing American beech and invasive shrubs and other interfering species, but also how to uh, regrow forests and grow trees. So those are like kill trees, grow trees. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I serve as part of my duties. I serve as the director of Cornell's are not teaching and research forest, which is a 42, almost 4,300 acre uh, managed forest that um, uses a demonstration of how to practice forestry. And I know probably a number of our listeners are familiar with you, Peter, from your Forest Connect webinars, because I know I listen to a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So every every month on the third Wednesday of the month, we have the the Forest Connect webinar series. Forest Connect's the program that a lot of us sit, uh, through the Cornell system contribute to, and mm -hmm. that's a kind of a, a flagship effort that uh, we have a lot of fun with. So mm -hmm. thank you. Peter, I really enjoy those, and I think a lot of times they... I don't know, I kind of just, I, I listen to him just to spur thought like, oh, I, I never thought about that. Maybe I should try something like that. And I think that leads to part of our topic today too. So that's mm -hmm. fantastic. How about you, Brett? I'm Brett Chedzoy. I've worked for the past 15 years with Peter regionally as an extension forester. I'm employed by Cornell Cooperative Extension in Schuyler County, New York. We're New York's smallest upstate county. And for the past seven years, I've worked part-time as the forest manager at Cornell's are not teaching research forest. Yeah, and we're going to probably talk a little bit about the are not and some of the work that's been done there. So that's cool. I think today, you know, it's it's really interesting, Greg. We've been we've been known to talk a little bit about deer on Silvercast <laughs> and, no. and definitely after Silvercast or For, in the foresters woods. never talk about deer, right? Yeah, we're we no, we never talk about deer. We and we don't have any opinions on deer, but when we, when we actually admit that we do, um, we're always looking for answers, always looking for ways we can do things. And Peter, you mentioned um, kind of the Forestry Connect and in 2020, you guys did a really interesting webinar on slash walls that I think at, lit, at least lit the fire with me, kind of made me start thinking, hey, this is something we should really start thinking about. So maybe it's a really good place to start. So so what are slash walls? Okay. Um, 
so it's interesting talking about foresters talking about deer probably the only other thing that gets as much conversation is finding good markets right yeah that's <laughs> so, right the uh slash walls were something that brett and i developed um at least to our knowledge at the Arnott Forest, and it was it was really trying to find a practical solution to a problem that had um, challenged us for more than a decade. And uh, we were we were finding that that deer every time we tried to do a regeneration harvest, uh, we do what seemed like textbook perfect silviculture you know, different kinds of regeneration systems, harvesting systems, and we we kept. Uh, growing back everything but the desirable commercial species that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And and we had back in the late 90s, the Arnott Forest had worked with some, we'd worked with some colleagues that were kind of a wildlife deer biology group. And we had started an earn a buck hunting program. So we required hunters to shoot two does before they were eligible to shoot a buck. We tripled the harvest of deer on the Arnott. And we still didn't even 15 years later, was had no effect, no meaningful effect on how we could regenerate the forest. And, and around the state, there was a lot of conversation about, well, we need to, you know, we need to increase the deer hunter effort. We need to, you know, all these kind of, kind of the lethal side of how do you manage the deer herd? And, you know, people are talking about, we need to bring in wolves and bring in cougars and mountain lions and, and all of this, you know, whether those things work, there were decades into the future working through the bureaucracy of, of the New York system. New York, I don't think New York's unique in that. So Brett and I were just challenged with, well, we're, we need to manage a forest. We're trying to do things um, as, as part of the land grant role to demonstrate to people how to practice forestry. We knew that forests were regeneration harvests were happening in New York and the Northeast and throughout the, you know, everywhere. And so we had to come up with a no a practical solution. And, and so we started off with this idea of, well, what if we accumulate logging debris slash and low grade material around the perimeter of a harvest in a sufficient volume that it would keep the deer out. And uh, it, it was, it was our way to try to get away from the, the use of the word hope as part of a silvicultural prescription, <laughs> it just, you know, it seemed like we wanted to be able to call the shots a little bit better. And, and, uh, so we, we launched into it and Brett did a, Brett did all the, you know, the really hard work of really bringing the idea together and making it crystallize as something that would actually be practical and, and finding some loggers that would, that would make it happen on the ground. So Brett, you, um, initiated that first trial at the Arnott, is that correct? Yes, we attempted our first slash wall in 2017. So what did that look like? I mean, how did you go about constructing that and what did what did that experience look like? We started the conversation about a year earlier with a local logging contractor who had been working at the Arnott Forest for over 20 years doing a lot of research-related harvest, so he was accustomed to the trying new things and doing things that weren't necessarily standard operating procedure in a timber harvest. And he also was a contractor that had a gravel and excavation business. Hmm. So our first vision for building slash walls was to 
bring slash from inside the harvest area over to the perimeter and then stack it with something. And we didn't quite know what the stacking part was gonna look like. Consequently, uh, we, we leaned towards this particular contractor because he offered to put a excavator with a thumb on the job and use that to build the wall. And since then we've seen walls build a lot of different ways. They all seem to be working well. And we've found that, you know, it doesn't take one specialized machine. Most of our walls to date have been built with a feller puncher, just basically throwing and piling slash. I know when I watched the webinar, I was really surprised at the size of your walls. Like what were the specifications that you kind of initially thought about? When we put together our first contract, we thought it was important to have both a qualitative and a quantitative criteria in the contract. We had no idea if the lawyers that we work with on the Cornell campus would buy into it. But our first contract said that the walls had to be built at least 10 feet high, 10 feet wide, and be sufficiently dense to exclude deer as determined by me, the forest manager. And the contract was approved. The contractor felt comfortable with that contractual language. We have since modified our contract to say that the walls need to be built to a target height, which is still 10 feet, but 10 feet to a two inch diameter branch. And since freestanding 10 foot walls tend to be 20 foot wide, we just say that they have to be 20 feet wide. We're not out there measuring wall width as they're being built. The the, uh, sufficiently dense to exclude deer, that's still in there. And that just gives us a little bit of leverage to look at a wall and say, hey guys, you know, the height's fine, but you left a big hole in the bottom. How quickly does that go when using a contractor or in your experience, how quickly can you put together a wall like that? So surprisingly fast. Uh, the first contractors that built walls for us went through, a, I would say, a little bit of a learning curve, but they definitely became more efficient after the first few hundred feet and really went about building walls differently than what Peter and I had originally envisioned. We thought that initially the trees would be directionally felled into a kind of a center line and then pushed up with whatever was available. And the contractors that built the first successful slash wall at the Arnott Forest, it's a mechanized Amish logging crew called Zooks Logging near Corning, New York. They had a large feller buncher and some grapple skitters. The way they went about building this was to basically make a dense foundation of more pole type timber that they could sort of lay in and make something that deer wouldn't be able to tunnel underneath. Even because if you think about just putting tree crowns or coarse slash on top of the ground, once the leaves and small twigs are gone, there's a lot of daylight through there. So they would take the kind of the submerchantable poles, lay that in a windrow, and then achieve the height by putting the coarser, fluffier stuff on top. That's pretty ingenious. And that was all credit to the loggers because all we did was say, here's a contract and here's a harvest, mm-hmm. build us a slash wall. 
And I remember getting them started and coming back a few days later and they had already built probably 1200 feet of slash wall at that point. And it just, it looked great. It looked, um, I think better than what we could have imagined. And as time went on, they just learned more and more little tricks. And I wouldn't say that there was any great revelation or great secret as to how to do this. And since then, Peter and I have seen a number of other slash walls built in other states. And each contractor seems to kind of invent his own method to doing it. And the ones we've talked to all seem, I would say, actually surprisingly content and excited about the slash walls. It's it's probably worth noting that the the label slash wall is is a bit well, a misnomer maybe because it's it's slash but it's it's also other low value poor market opportunity material that goes in there and it's it's you know once you once you commit to building the wall you can't have a ninety nine percent wall and so anything that's that you know however the, the contractors is sourcing the material for the wall unless it's high-end timber, um, the wall is the highest priority and it's it's essential that that gets uh, built in a way that that it's going to be successful. My sense is the deer just kind of wander around on the outside and they're always looking for some passageway. And if if they're given an opportunity, then they'll squeeze through. I mean, they, they could probably jump over if they needed to um, under like under duress, but they're more than happy to crawl through it. And, uh, and that was the only failure um, that we had in those early walls was a, a tree, a coarse hemlock with, with large branches kind of suspended the, the stem off the ground. And when the needles had dropped away, the, the deer figured it out. So we plugged that and solved the problem. Yeah, it's, I imagine it's kind of like a fence. They can always find the hole. Yes. And I know both of you have kept careful records on that. Do you have any kind of estimate on how fast that or what the rate of construction is of that wall? Or does that depend on so, lots of circumstances? Yes and yes. So the the, so the, the averages are the easy numbers. And, and the loggers in those first, the first year, the 2017 year, we did four harvests. And the loggers kept track of machine hours. And then we used uh, GPS equipment to measure the lengths of the walls and uh they the estimate was it worked out to be about two feet per minute for constructing the walls um then we had another round of slash walls that got started in 2019 and we did some time motion studies we had a technician that was keeping track of of building the walls and and it worked out to be i think something like just over like 2.2 minutes per or 2.2 2.2 feet per minute. So it's just mm-hmm. slightly faster. So we're, you know, pretty comfortable with this rule of thumb of two feet per minute, which is pretty amazing when you think about how fast they can yeah. build the walls. And does that translate into a certain cost? Because I know a lot of people will be interested in, you know, what's the cost of that relative to other forms of keeping the deer out? So the, the cost, we when you work backwards from the machine hour cost, uh, it works out on an average to be about a dollar and a half a foot for for the machine costs, and the the variation in that first year ranged between about ninety cents a foot up to over three dollars a foot. And the and the primary variable 
that determined where we had that fluctuation in cost was for uh, topography. So in really steep mm -hmm. topography, the machines were less able to, to function. The other factor was where there was insufficient amounts of slash or particularly low-grade material, and they had to move around more. That, that was highlighted in an area that uh, we've since named the wedge harvest, which was about a nine-acre harvest, and it was essentially a triangular-shaped piece. And what the loggers pointed out to us is you're, as you're building one wall approaching a corner, you're depleting all of the low-grade material that you need when you come back. Right. Yeah. yeah. Particularly as it, you know, as the three side, three corners, it's a, they're going to be all acute angles. And so as, as you're coming back on that second side, you don't have anything to work with. So they were, they were traveling a lot more. And so a lot more machine hours to go into building those. So we've, we've, we've learned no, no acute angles, uh, <laughs> as circular as possible and, and, uh, kind of, or, big sweeping arches yeah yeah and, or narrow fingers would be the same right oh, yeah, yeah that yeah, yeah that wouldn't that wouldn't be that wouldn't be good so here in wisconsin i think in the lake states we always hear about deer management in the east where you guys have to resort to deer fences because around here we get them but or we have we use them but they're not nearly i think as common as maybe in where you work so how does how does a slash wall like at that ninety cents or ninety cents to three dollars a foot or that dollar fifty average how does that compare to the alternatives like deer fencing or other methods? So deer fencing costs are surprisingly elusive for us to find because that was like our big question as we're thinking about how to how to talk with foresters about this as a strategy that they may want to consider. Um, the best numbers we can come up with uh, one one was we built a fence around a sugar bush that we harvested. Um, only because, well, for two reasons. One, it had been thinned repeatedly over time, so we were kind of short on low grade inside the sugar bush, and also it was in an area that we could pretty easily get around it to check the integrity of the fence. And that cost us, so we did all the internal uh, construction costs, and it worked out to be four and a half dollars a foot just for the install, for the labor and the materials for the install. Um, other numbers that we've heard for install go up as high as six or seven dollars a foot. And this is assuming that you're using low value trees that you retain around the perimeter to attach the fence to. When you start bringing in fence posts, the, the costs would go up. And we had initially, when, when we got, when Brett and I were talking in 2016 about a regeneration harvest, and we thought, all right, well, we got to manage the deer. We're going to bite the bullet. We're going to build a fence. And Brett, you know, was spending time trying to locate trees on the perimeter of a about a 60 acre harvest that was somewhere on the order of 7,000 feet of perimeter. And, you know, one of those days was like a windy day and we're standing out there watching tree branches fall. And we're thinking, this is the non, this is a non-starter. You know, the, right. the, you're, you're talking to the entirety of the forestry crew at the, at the Arnott Forest. And neither, <laughs> neither, neither of us have time to, to go out in the woods and, and check damage to trees. And we've since talked to foresters, especially out of Pennsylvania, where they do a lot of deer fencing and, and they bemoan the, um, the cost of having to check, inspect, uh, go in and repair those fences. We'd, we'd done a, I guess we'd done a kind of an email survey casting about to try and find foresters with experience. I think we got some feedback from foresters in Wisconsin or the Lake States where 
and I don't remember the, the actual cost, but it's the, 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 the installation cost is a small part of a fence. Maintaining that fence, checking it every two weeks or maybe every month or more frequently than that is, is a very labor-intensive, costly effort. So the 30-acre fence that we have around the sugar bush, we check every two weeks. And uh, the, I know the first year that we did that out of 52 weeks, we checked a weekly the first year and out of 52 weeks or roughly whatever, uh, it was about 40, 40 occasions where we had to go in and do some kind of a repair just <laughs> because of Wow. Of, wow. <laughs> but, so, so in that, but keep in mind in that area, that was not a regeneration harp, truly a regeneration harvest. We had fairly high residual stocking. Yeah. And so there's, and it was an older sugar bush. So it was, you know, in a, in a, you could design it so that you wouldn't have quite as many um, opportunity branches, you know, dangling over the top of your fence. But, but it still is, there's a big cost there. Yeah. You don't think yeah. about that cost. A lot of times you just look at that, you know, linear foot cost initially. That's pretty amazing. There's another downside to fences that I haven't heard talked about that much. And that is if and when your fence fails, and I would say it's more of a question of when, at some point during the regeneration phase, and dare get in there, can you even get them out at that point? And what we've seen in our slash walls is that by about the end of the first growing season, it is such a jungle inside that if it's like maybe a five or 10 acre harvest, you could potentially chase the deer back out of there or hunt them back out of there. But our larger slash walls and our largest walls right now are, we have a 150 acre wall and a 160 acre wall. After two or three growing seasons, it's like head high impenetrable thickets of vegetation in there and if deer get in um you, good luck trying to get them out so i would be very nervous about building a fence that i know it's just a matter of time before something flattens it and in the days or weeks that it may take before i find that and repair that deer will get in and i'm just not going to get them out at that point Jason, I see on the screen that you have experience with some of this stuff. And so just like bringing us uh, over to the Wisconsin side of things, how did you get into slash wall work here? So Peter, Brett, what you guys are talking about is, is exactly what got me thinking about slash walls. You talk about the high deer numbers, the browse, the amount of trees that a single deer will eat is unbelievable. And in fact, a lot of people in the public don't believe it. Uh, I had a, a wildlife biologist the other day while he was picking up his tree seedlings actually tell me it wasn't deer, it was rabbits that are eating all of our trees. Them too. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so what you guys are talking about with the fences, I'm sitting here listening to and I'm just shaking my head in agreements because everything you're saying is like, yes, that's the exact same thing we've been experiencing here. Uh, the local staff here at the office, they've been putting up fences in Wapaka County for about the last 10 years now, and we're seeing the exact same thing. We haven't been able to grow trees, nice northern hardwood species. But what I got thinking was these fences take so much maintenance and time and effort and, and energy. Why don't we try something that really won't take that much maintenance after it's installed? So as an equipment operator for the DNR. I had a recent timber sale done 
we have it's uh, our bulldozer units are 450 John Deere's, and they're about 100 horse bulldozers. We have some root rakes that we attach to the front of the blades, and I thought, why don't I just start piling up some residual slash on this site, and I'll make some exclosures. I wasn't really sure on what specs that I wanted for the site, but I thought, well, I want to shoot for six to eight feet high. That's how tall our our fences are. And I want it wide because a deer can jump six to eight feet. But I also recognize that deer are are relatively lazy and they're not going to want to walk through anything that's difficult. I laid out a couple areas and I flagged them and I started pushing slash together and turned out that you guys were doing the exact same thing over there (laughs) about a year prior. So it was really fascinating when Brad and Greg said, hey, we should think about this. And it's like, oh, well, that's neat. You guys are doing it out there already. (laughs) So that's kind of what got me into it is just the recognition that our kids and grandkids aren't going to have a forest if we don't try to eliminate the deer from the equation. (laughs) And maybe one of the the questions that's kind of cool then, if you think about your experience and we think about that, you know, the New York experience is maybe there's, maybe it's the really big question sitting underneath it. Like, does this work? So what's the experience that you guys have with that? We're all familiar, of course, with the controversy of trying to reduce deer numbers. So slash walls basically circumvent the conversation. All we're doing is keeping deer out for a period of time. It could be as little as five years. It may be as long as 15 years or more, depending on what your starting conditions are and what the vegetative response is. We think of it as roughly a 10-year process to get that advanced regeneration above the browse height of deer. And then the slash walls gradually decompose in place. These are not removed. That's a commonly asked question. Well, what do you do with slash walls? Well, it sits out there and rots away. And meanwhile, all the other wildlife enjoys that, calls it home, and eventually the deer will go back in and reclaim that habitat. But it's really eye-opening when you see what grows inside these exclosures in the absence of deer. And I'm not here, by the way, today to knock the idea of building fences, but I think that slash walls have a lot of advantages. There's there's a time and place for what fences when we don't simply don't have enough slash. And Peter and I have come to realize that basically people that have been doing really good forestry over the years are kind of penalized in this because they may have already removed a lot of that low-grade timber that would have been useful for building a slash wall. And I think that there's some creative ways to kind of work around that. And we're still experimenting to see, well, just how small can the wall be and still be effective in keeping deer out for a sufficient amount of time. But when you we talk about the cost, the maintenance, the risks of failure, I think slash wall is slash walls are simply superior in all of those regards. Brad, you had asked about do they work and how do we know that they work? And and I'll answer that, but well there's a earlier comment when you're talking about made me think of the range of costs of those slash holes from about 90 cents a foot up to over three dollars a foot. And um, we work with the average of a dollar and a half um, is what we compensate our loggers for. 
And the the three dollars a foot would be a kind of a scary endpoint. And so what what Brett has done is, and we have the flexibility on over four thousand acres when we lay out a harvest, we can adjust the location of the perimeter, and it and it allows us to be a little bit flexible and saying, okay, well we can avoid some steep topography. We can put the perimeter in an area where we know we have adequate low grade and adequate access to slash, and so we can keep we can contain those costs. Um, and and keep it closer to that dollar and a half or less per foot of construction. The validating whether or not the walls worked was our first uh, order of business. So as you know, we we set out. We said, all right. The first question is, can loggers build a slash wall? And so you know, Brett Brett charged the logging crew and the contract stipulated it and said, here's what we need you to do. Uh, loggers are a creative bunch and just kind of like give them an end point and get out of the way, make sure they know what the expectations are, and they'll find a way to deliver on that. Um, and we've seen that. We've been, Brett and I have visited a handful of slash holes throughout New England, and everyone has been done differently, and they've all looked great. So it's that's pretty neat. The second question was, do they work, and how do we know if they're going to keep the deer out? And we started, uh, we used three different strategies to validate the absence of deer inside slash holes. One of them, kind of a very low-tech way, was we went in in the wintertime and walked around and looked for deer tracks in the snow. Um, same thing after you get some rain or in the spring when the ground is soft, the deer would be walking on skid trails. And so we'd go in and we would look for deer, simply just walk around and look for deer tracks. Um, we didn't see any. The second thing that we did was a little more high-tech, uh, was we had a, a series of cameras um, motion sensitive cameras that we mounted at some various locations. Uh, we started off using uh, with appropriate permissions from the state wildlife agency using baited camera stations inside the slash wall. We got great pictures of turkeys and raccoons and possums and you know everything else that enjoyed the corn, uh, no pictures of deer. And we ended up just because of the effort of trying to move corn in, into the center of these harvests, we just located the cameras at the gates uh, and just to keep track of whether because there was essentially one or two opening visual openings in the slash walls that we we had protected with plastic met the poly uh, mesh fencing the deer would walk around they'd stand there and they'd look through and so if we had a deer on the inside they'd look out and a deer on the outside would look in and so the cameras just at the gates were sufficient. We'd, we were able to document the absence of deer with those cameras. The third thing was kind of the, the proof is in the pudding test. And we worked with a protocol that we had developed some colleagues of ours and we had developed called AVID, assessing the vegetation impacts of deer. We have a website, it's aviddeer.com. And just to kind of give a very simple explanation of that, you you go in, you locate half a dozen six-foot radius plots, uh, tag a handful, four or five seedlings of the same species on each of those plots. You want about 25 or 30 stems of, of each species, and you can have multiple species scattered in these plots. And then you measure the height of the seedling every year. And if the deer are browsing the seedlings, they don't grow taller. Um, if they're not browsing the seedlings, they do grow taller. So we had um, a series of avid 
these arrays of AVID plots inside the slash wall and outside of the slash wall. And we were able to document that, yes, there is a deer problem on the outside, because just like Jason was pointing out, some people don't want to believe that there's that deer actually eat trees. And then on the inside, we were able to document that the seedlings were growing much taller um, and at a faster rate gaining that height. So from that, we concluded that the slash walls were effective. I'd like to echo what Peter just said. Um, very primitive way of checking. Do they keep deer out? Check in the winter months. Where are the tracks? Right. Um, my biggest slash wall I had this in 2019, take a walk in the wintertime, shin knee deep snow, and there's deer tracks all over the place. And I found one set that w- actually made it inside the barrier somehow. I don't know how, but you can see they, they, they looked on the edge for quite a bit to get out. And that track disappeared after the next snow and they didn't go back in. Uh, and what's nice with that is I flagged where the track went in and then I, I added more slash to it in the following growing season. So it was really nice. But yeah, low maintenance. And like Brett said, they decompose over time. So it, it's it's an investment to put them in initially. But what is that investment return? You know, that's That's an entire new generation of trees. Um, and are, so, are you seeing positive results also, Jason, in terms of height growth on seedlings? I'm seeing what I would expect to see for results. And yes, it's working. Uh, Brad can attest he was out on one of my sites and within the barrier, two or three years after harvest with aspen, uh, fast growing species, of course, but we've historically not been able to regenerate small aspen areas because of the deer numbers. We've got 10, 12 foot aspen inside the barrier, outside hardly anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going for a lot of different tree species. So they're, it's definitely effective at keeping the deer out long enough to establish aspen relatively quick. And the oak walls, I guess the oak areas that I have walled around, uh, they're working as well. And tie that, that barrier construction in with scarification and the, the use of what I did with the root rake and the bulldozer is I'm exposing bare mineral soil during a great acorn drop uh, for white oak on this particular site. And we've got oak coming up as well. So it is kind of a dual purpose and it worked really well. You make an interesting point about the differences in species. And I know, Brett, you were thinking you needed to have about a 10-year regeneration period for those walls in the hardwoods. But then in in Jason's Aspen, he doesn't need that long. So maybe those wall specs almost could vary too by species, um, you know, and how long you need it to last. So that's kind of interesting. Sure. One thing while we're on this topic, so we've been doing many different measurements, both inside the walls in terms of regeneration and on the walls themselves. And one thing we have noticed, and I think it depends in part on the construction method. So I'm looking at the screen background and Jason there with his bulldozer walls. Now that wall is gonna be fairly dense and have a lot of Mm. material packed into it. Mm -hmm. Our walls are, I would say, uh, more porous and lower density because the slash is being essentially thrown into the wall and allowed to just pile up on itself. And 
we are seeing, I wouldn't call it significant slumping, but we are seeing slumping in our walls, uh, roughly 8 to 10% a year. Peter can give you the exact facts and figures on that. So if you're starting with a 10-foot wall and it's slumping, let's just say 10% a year for the first few years, after several growing seasons, now you're down to possibly a six or seven foot wall. Now you're starting to get to a wall height that deer could potentially see over the top. But when you see these older walls, you realize that A, there's a lot of other stuff that starts growing up in the wall, like blackberry canes and hardwood suckers and seedlings. What really is probably deterring the deer besides the fact that they just lose that sense that that's a corridor for them to move through anymore. And they see that wall as like probably after the initial trauma of having their trails and movement patterns disrupted, I think deer just say, okay, you know, that's an area where we don't walk Mm -hmm. through anymore. The other thing though, is that deer are not going to probably try to breach that wall until they can easily walk over the top of it. So that wall is going to need to slump down to where it's within perhaps a couple feet of the ground. And and that may change with heavy snowfall and crusted snow. But the we, we've simply been targeting 10 years because we thought like, okay, if we're doing everything else right and doing um, the necessary overlaying silvicultural treatments here, we ought to be able to pull this off. Right. In 10 years. Yeah. Timeline is, is, and I think Brad, you're pointing out different species may have different timelines, but also different starting conditions. And Jason had the good fortune of a, of a white oak acorn crop. The, I mean, the audience can't see it, but the picture that's behind me on the screen is a 25 acre harvest in predominantly red oak and it coincided with uh, an incredible acorn red oak seed deer. And that was completed in late 2019. Yeah, 2019. So we've got the 2020 and 21 growing seasons and we're talking about doing an overstory removal this year for the first time, just because we've we've got red oak that's between two and three feet tall. The residual basal area there was about 55 square 50 to 55 square feet and so we're, we're feeling like it's it's timely we we have great stocking you know from our we have we have a, a research regeneration plots one per acre throughout these harvests and so we're able to to monitor what's going on so the that and that wall was a great wall and, it, and we don't need it to last 10 years probably um, but other walls um, we want in as many years as we can possibly get yeah, i was going to tease Peter and say it's a terrible picture he put up of that oak shelter wood because I took a picture in there in the fall we had one of our annual field days out there and it was basically waist high two-year-old waist high oak seedlings just a solid carpet throughout the entire shelter wood what a problem <laughs> Greg, you asked about the species composition and what we use to make these walls for desired species regen. And Peter and Brett, you guys, I'm thinking the exact same thing that you guys are doing. And I've never talked or met to you guys in the past. So it's, it's interesting. I'm on the same page as what you guys are at right now with all of this. And that was my thought process. If we've got a slower growing tree species, definitely you need to use some hardier material to build that wall. And then recognize that, like Brett said, it's going to slump over time uh, and build it up a little more. So 
it does get above browse height by the time the deer are able to penetrate the wall and get in. So yeah. it's really nice to hear that my, my thoughts are you guys have done and uh, it confirms a lot. Thank with you. With that in mind, has it changed like from the, from the first walls you constructed until the most recent ones you've seen has the width and the height and the kind of the volume, has that changed in your mind as a book, what you need based on what you're seeing for slumping and all the kind of the, uh, the changes occurring in the walls. So, so the initial specifications were, I don't remember how we came up with the 10 foot height as the initial spec, but it, it just seemed like a good number, right? So we went with 10 feet and we said 10 feet wide. And Brett had said earlier that when you build something 10 feet tall, you need a bigger base. And so when we went in and, um, repeatedly measured the same locations around these original walls. And we've continued to do that with subsequent walls. The first walls, the average height was 10.1 feet. And that was measured to any woody material that was part of that slash wall. So a little twig, quarter inch diameter twig counted. And those were the walls that we were monitoring and measuring. They dropped at about 10% per year. And we felt like that for some of those walls where we needed more time, that that might not give us the time. We, we also felt like there was a fair amount of variability. So the loggers weren't out there with measuring tapes. They were eyeballing it. And, and the average was good, but there was, we saw some variability in how it was made. So in the, in the most recent set of walls, we, we modified the contract to say that the, the 10 feet has to be measured to a stem that's at least two inches in diameter. So these are substantially taller walls. And we also had, and this was a, a trick we learned from a forester, uh, New York forester, Kellen Murphy. Um, he was working with a landowner that had been to one of our field tours and said, hey, I want to do that on my property, one of those early adopters. And he went out and put in a, had a logger come in and put a slash wall. Kellen Murphy is his forester. And, and Kellen went out with his paint gun and had a 10 foot pole and would put a spot of paint on the tree mm. at 10 feet. Well, we weren't sure that we were good enough aims with a squirt paint gun to hit, hit 10. I, <laughs> I could imagine doing it and having like a line that would stretch anywhere yeah, from about yeah. six yep. feet up to 14 feet somewhere on that tree and just confuse the logger. So we had one of our, our research technicians take a paint roller on a, an extension paint pole, put some orange spray paint on the roller, then knowing the height of the extension pole could put a, an orange spot on trees around the perimeter. So about every half a chain or a chain or something. So it gave a target to the loggers. The loggers really liked that because then when they hit that mark, they knew that they were done and they didn't have to keep trying to, to find slash to, to get to wherever they thought they might be. Now, obviously there's variation and, you know, you stand in a dip or you stand on a hump, but visually, and we'll know here in a couple of months if the variability is reduced, but visually those walls look more uniform and, and certainly more robust. And I know Peter, uh, I think I recall from your webinar, the importance of width as width being almost as important as the height. Is that something that you found? Yes, we, we assume so. The um, we're, we're visualizing the slash wall, and particularly the the kind of the porous. When we say porous, it's not porous like porous, but it's porous like you got a bunch of treetops packed together. And we think of that even as the wall the slumps and and drops in height, that it functions 
uh, as a, like a cattle guard would out at out West. If you've been out West, you drive around, you mm -hmm. got these cattle guards on roads that are at the same level as the road, but the cows aren't going to step, put their hooves down between those bars for fear of breaking the legs. So the, we're, we're thinking that the deer would visualize, you know, the prospects of trying to walk through this, this coarse slash, the fluffy stuff that we have on top as being a, pretty dangerous uh pursuit of theirs yeah and even as it slumps the we have walls that are you know four four or five feet now in height but that's still taller at least during the non-winter season that's above the the normal height of what deer can see over so deer aren't and deer don't have our i don't think deer have our ability to to and to look at a wall and say hey i bet there's seedlings on the other side of that let me find a way to get in and as Brett was pointing out, at some point, you know, as as young deer come in, some of these walls now are for us are five or six years old. The, the younger deer have never been there, and so there's no historic pattern. So, but I'm I'm getting way too close to deer psychology, and, and that's <laughs> not that's that's you can bring in another you can bring in a deer psychologist to uh, correct our our assumptions uh, no, on a future Silvacast. Deer psychology is that's the, you know, there's, there's a certain level of silvicultural nerdy, nerdiness that our audience has come to expect. So even just talking about slash porosity, I think we're, we're already there. So <laughs> you should see if you can get Jordan Peterson to come on and yeah. <laughs> dissect the deer's psyche. Yeah. I, I'm curious, have you guys tried this with uneven age management? So like actually relatively small openings. So we have talked about that a lot. Um, it's, it'd be a, a lot of fun to see if we could make it work. Um, I know you've had Ralph Nyland, Dr. Nyland as a, as a presenter on Silvacast before, and, and we both are, you know, have huge admiration for Ralph and, and he's done, and he's been a big proponent of uneven age management. I don't see a lot of uneven age management, um, in deliberate uneven age management in New York in terms of right, trying to regulate stand structure. So when we've talked about it, trying to, so I, I don't see where, so there's like two scales. So there would be the scale of the stand, putting a slash wall around the perimeter of the stand, mm -hmm. that, which would probably, if you're going to do single tree selection, that's what you'd have to do. Uh, if you're using group selection, then, then you could potentially put slash walls around groups. Um, and I'll just, let me pause and go on a tangent here. No, we don't know. No, we haven't tried it. And no, we don't have an answer for this. So yeah. I'm just, I, we're, I'm speculating and Brett's going to speculate here in a minute too. So the, in, in trying to think about if, so let's just keep it simple and say, if so uneven age, single tree selection, put a slash wall around the outside of the stand. Uh, you have a cutting cycle that's every 12, 15, 20 years. By that time, that original slash wall has slumped to the point that it's probably ineffective. Now you go in for your second cutting cycle. I don't know where you're going to get your slash to, unless you had these kind of expanding concentric bands. You know, in every every cutting cycle, you built another ring around uh, the stand, uh, but you'd have to plan for that. So if you need 60 or 100 feet of slash material to build a wall, then you've got to have a going to have to work with a pretty large stand if you're going to do that. The other option would be group selection, where we've done some experimental walls that were one acre in size, 
we didn't have enough material in those. And two out of the three that we built, there was not enough material to build a 10-foot wall. We were building about a six or a seven-foot wall. But on one acre, that may be big enough because you're not occupying as much of the deer's home range. So they may be less inclined to try to get right. in. Um, and those those smaller walls, I'd have to go back and look at the data. I don't think we've had much deer activity, if any, inside those one acre walls that had less height. So, but the footprint on the wall is somewhere around, well, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, somewhere between five and 10% of the harvest area is in the wall. So if you have, let's just say it's for, to make the math easy for me, um, is, is 10% of the harvest area and on those smaller areas than that harvest, is, it is mm-hmm. closer to that 10 or 12%. When we get up about 60 or 80 acres, then we're down to about 5% of the area. So if you're putting in small group selections and you're building walls, even if they're smaller, you're occupying a lot of the land base. And so at some point, depending upon your frequency of cutting cycles, you're going to run out of land area or you're going to run out of slash. Hmm. So I don't, we would love to have somebody come up with an idea that said, Hey, why don't you try this? We, Brett and I debate it in a, in a very friendly way, but it's like, Hey, would this work? And I don't know, but would this work? And so I'll say, we haven't tried it yet because we haven't been confident that we've got something that's, that's worth playing with. So Brett, how will you disagree with that? Or what would you, what would you offer differently? <laughs> the several one acre walls that we've built to date as an experiment where we task the loggers with taking everything but the grade inside the one acre circles and putting it in the wall. In some cases, they took the scrag too. And what we got out of it was about two thirds of a wall. The height was okay, not quite as wide, not quite as dense. And I'm pretty confident in saying there's been no, no, we don't go up and look at those walls because they're, they're pretty hard to reach, but I strongly doubt, um, you know, to your point, Jason, about the Aspen suckers, we took a group out there, I think at the end of the first growing season to look at those walls and there were Aspen suckers that were like 10 feet tall inside them already. So, and if you're getting that kind of coppice or suckering, you know, do you need a 10 foot wall? Because maybe that, so we're not quite ready to say what the lower limit is. Mm -hmm. And I think it very much depends on what you're starting with and what your expected deer pressure is there. But the, we try to approach these from a worst case scenario because to get the regeneration almost there and a hundred acre seed tree or shelter wood cut and then the wall falls apart and it doesn't quite get past the deer that was a lot of work and expense for nothing and it's really it's easy to go out and patch a little hole here and there going out and making extensive patches on a slash wall i don't want to be in that situation so the the one acre walls though I think are probably, and that seems to be about the smallest that we can do and still have a significant wall. And that isn't maybe, that's almost more like an even age expanding gap type system. But I think it's a way to, especially when we're talking about 
that more the sun-loving species like our oaks, I think it's a way of at least establish, establishing multiple age classes across a larger stand or area. Jason, I know you have obviously northern hardwoods in your area. Have you thought about these smaller openings? Yeah, so just on that, what Brett was talking about triggered some a question real quick, but I'll get to your, your question, Greg. Um, yes, so these smaller openings, as, as I've been doing my post-sale recon um, and walking through the acres that have been cut, I've noticed that where I get my regeneration is in those tops that are fluffy. Um, they're kind of like those cattle guards that they don't, the deer don't want to walk in because it's uncomfortable. I would imagine getting to that deer psychology, but uh, it, it's more work for them to be in there. Um, so with some sales that I have going on right now, I've actually my lowest limit for utilization on a couple sales is eight inches. So I'm leaving everything that is smaller than eight inches on site. And I'm not requesting, I'm not having the loggers lop all this down to a certain height. I'm leaving it basically fluff all over the place. I'm leaving this entire area uh, as a, a thick layer of slash and other smaller merchantable material. And the thought there is that we should have seedlings coming up through all that vegetation, that, uh, that slash. And getting right to the, the small acreage um, experimenting, I'm going down that path right now, basically, and saying, if I've got some gaps within northern hardwoods, I plan on essentially caging those gaps and putting slash within those gaps. Uh, if we've got a little bigger areas, then I would be implementing a smaller wall probably increasing the specs of that wall to to hopefully have it in place for seven to eight, maybe 10 years. And hearing what Peter and Brett are saying as far as slumping over the years, you know, is it eight to 10% a year? That gives me an idea of how high do I need them? And I mean, what you guys are saying is really, really fantastic. So yes, I will be putting in flash walls and slash barriers and I don't even know what to call it if I'm just caging the entire area, a slash C. Well, <laughs> to keep the deer out. <laughs> I think the term you used is right, is caging. Um, so yeah. that's a technique that people have used for the use of slash and maybe a different format. Yeah, I think it will work uh, solely based on on what I've seen as far as where do I get regeneration in a regen harvest with high deer numbers. I'm really curious. So on Silvacast, we're always trying to plant seeds with our listeners. Like, you know, Hey, this is something new or maybe something to think about. So hopefully today we've planted some seeds with listeners about, Hey, maybe slash walls or something I could try. What would be some tips that you guys would give to people, foresters thinking about slash walls, but they've never done it before. The first thing I would say is, what are you waiting for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Experiment. Yep. And it's going to seem like a daunting task. And around here, when we were initially doing this and we had tour groups coming, we could hear a lot of grumbling in the crowd of like, oh, I could just see getting my logger to do this. You know, they don't even mm -hmm. like doing that. And that's not really been our experience at all. And these other foresters have gone out and tried it. You know, they basically had the benefit of maybe coming and seeing our slash walls once or just watching a webinar and they shared the concept with their logging crews and 
wrote up a contract that they felt gave them some leverage to get the project done. And as Peter pointed out earlier, it, the loggers can be very creative and good at problem solving. But one thing I would emphasize is that you need to work with a contractor that buys into this. Now, how you come up with finding that contractor, I, I don't have an easy answer to that one. But if you cannot possibly inspect a slash wall into compliance, it's going to be really challenging to do if you have to show up every few days and go walk the perimeter of some big rugged harvest and try to measure and say, oh, you only build it to 9.5 feet instead of 10 feet or something like that. That's just, it's not going to work for anybody. So you need to have contractors there that are properly compensated and incentivized to do the job well and do it without needing to be there beating them over the head or twisting their arms. And Peter made the quip earlier about the, the wall has to be 100.0% completed. You can't go and have weak spots and holes here and there because it only takes one little hole for deer to start tunneling in and then things don't work out as planned. So work, work with a good crews. Uh, and, and I think we all know who those crews are in our neighborhood. And if it's the guy that's going to be fighting you at every turn and looking to always cut corners, that's probably not your starting point for building your first slash walls. Perfect. Everything Brett said, I would add just strategically, maybe tactically, if you're a landowner or an agency or an NGO, a land trust that likes the idea, but there's not necessarily a great reception, maybe as part of another harvest, do a, do a small demonstration, set up a, a five acre slash wall, the, help the logger build confidence in the fact that they're able to do it. The logger is not on the hook to put up a slash wall around a hundred acres and, and risk losing their shirt, but they shouldn't anyway, but just it allows them to kind of take a small bite, chew it and prove to themselves that they can do it. And then you also have a working demonstration. So you can take other foresters out there. And once, you know, you, we can talk about it, but until you stand there and see it, these are, these are model, beautiful monolithic structures on the landscape. And it's delightful to stand there next to them and say, wow, this is going to work and it's going to keep deer out. And you can, and, and then you've got something to show them. And nobody was overly uh, anxious about a building a five acre slash wall or whatever, seven acres, three acres. That's a really good idea. We often advocate for piloting things. It's just people get comfortable with it. I would echo both Peter and Brett there, you know, plan it out, do some foresight on it. Um, get that contractor that has the buy-in. I have a timber sale right now where I've discussed it with the contractor of what the plan is. I've given my leader's intent, task, purpose, and end state. I have taken paint and put it 10 feet up on some of those trees, say, this is where I want you to pile all that slash. And I don't want it super fluffy. I would like it somewhat dense. Um, and they, they were going to biomass that area, but they bought into it. So they're going to leave that specific area and pile the slash. So having that foresight and the buy-in is huge. Um, the other one, and for us, is public use of those sites and its education is and working with the land owners, users, and and explaining the what and the why. 
Um, but then if you have a, if we have big areas and large slash walls, it's it's considering public use as well on on our side and state side. And all right, do we install gates that people can still access this acreage and utilize for berry picking, bird watching, turkey hunting, whatever it might be? Probably not deer hunting. And if they have any deer within the barriers and the walls, great, shoot them during season, of course. But uh, you know, allowing for public access and how would we get in? to these if we need it. it sounds like you guys have some gates um that's perfect but uh obviously stumps slow production we decided it was important to install some basic access gates because if not curiosity might kill the cat as people are trying to climb over these and when you stand next to them it's like oh it doesn't look like such a big deal and peter and i both tried to climb over slash walls once and I think we made it to the other side, but Never again. It, it was touch and go there. So. I'm it's stuck. Sketchy. It's sketchy. Even well, over the, six feet. Yeah. The, the real yeah. fear is you drop your cell phone down inside oh, the slash yeah. walls. Like, how are we ever going to get that back? So, as Brad said, if foresters are out there thinking about trying this, are there some resources? Um, I think I know the answer to this, but um, some resources where they might be able to go online, for example, Peter, and look at uh, maybe some of the slash wall information. Yes, there are. Uh, so the the two uh, two sources that we have, um, one is Brett and I created a, a blog site that's called slashwall.info, so singular on the wall, slashwall.info. And that's where we've started accumulating pictures and links to videos. We had a, a, a video that we worked through um, Cornell Cooperative Extension Media Services produced for. So it's kind of a five-minute quick, how do you build a slash wall and, and some of the benefits of it. And then we've had at least one or a couple uh, slash wall webinars that were hosted through the Forest Connect program. Those are on YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com slash Forest Connect and search for slash walls. And we can put that information in the show notes too. So that'd be great. Yes. Yeah, so I've, I've made it, started making a list of some other things to, to add to the, to the show notes. Brett and I are also on the verge of finishing a best management guide for slash walls. So it's kind of a talk you through or read your way through what we've learned. Um, and, and I, sh- I want to make sure I just kind of the tangent here. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to the loggers that we've worked with, to all of the people that have showed up at all of our field tours. We started with some ideas, but we've those have been enhanced um, many times over by the discussions that we've had by foresters that challenged us or loggers that challenged us or that encouraged us or gave us new ways to look and things to so this is um we're we're very much appreciative of all of the input that we've had the, i guess the, the the third thing that i would offer is the resources brett and i are uh, we spend like you all we spend our lives answering email and we're always happy if there's foresters or loggers out there and they're wondering like how do i do this um, we're happy to, to jump on the phone, jump on a Zoom, answer emails, send pictures back and forth. So we'll, we're happy to do some kind of direct one-on-one cooperation. I want to also credit, we have a couple of great technicians that have been out there doing a huge amount of data collection. And it's uh, because these are research projects, there's a lot of 
a lot of uh, field hours out there measuring slash walls, measuring regeneration plots. Uh, one of our technicians, as we're chatting here this afternoon, keeps texting me about building gates and some of the new slash walls and can he trim the edges and stuff? And it's like, you know the answer to that, Mike. Just trim the edges, do what you need to do. But And Jason, I think uh, some of your experience is documented in the Great Lakes Silviculture Library, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? I believe that is correct. I've been working with Brad and Colleen Matula and getting all that stuff and that information into the Great Lakes Silvicultural Library. And so there's sounds like there's a lot of, not a lot, but there's some resources out there for people if they're interested in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, anybody who's been working on this, myself, Brett, Peter, um, I think the more we do, the more people there will be to help spread the word and uh, say that this is, is a good idea. Uh, to address our our region problems. So, yeah. Well, I really appreciate all of you coming on board to discuss this. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in this topic. Um, It it hasn't been used widely in Wisconsin um, other than Jason that we know of. So I think there's going to be some folks really looking into it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This was a fantastic episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jason. It's nice to meet you. Sounds like you're doing great work in Wisconsin. I'd love to see it at some point. Likewise, I would love to come out to New York and see what you guys have going on. It was very nice meeting you guys. All right. Well, you guys, thank you again. That was a great conversation today. One of the coolest things about silviculture, Brad, is creativity people using their imaginations to solve problems. My point exactly. You know, you and Mary only see ugly piles of slash in the yard today. Mm -hmm. But after the slash walls have done their work, I only need to add some soil and some compost and bada boom, bada bing. I've got some raised garden beds. (laughs) The wonders of hugel culture, Greg. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to look that up. It's going to be big. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. Remember, continuing education credits are available for listening to Silvacast. Check out the Silvacast website for more information. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Freider, our producer, Noah LeMaid, IT master, theme music by Paul Freider, and of course, UW Stevens Points, Wisconsin Forestry Center. <laughs>